Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to the dispatch.com to see all our continuing coverage of the transition and everything else that's going on. Um, I'm a little uh, frantic and frustrated right now because Zencaster, which is the main software that we've been using for this, which we pay money for, um, has been um, has been treating me the way the great powers of Europe treated Poland for much of the 17th and 18th century, and I'm. I'm 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 ill disposed toward them. So we're recording this over Zoom. Hopefully the audio quality will meet our exacting standards. And I particularly want to thank our guest for being so patient as we got this up and going. Um, he's a returning guest. He's 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 he hasn't qualified yet for the five-time gold jacket, but um it's my friend Mo Alethi, who's the executive director of the Georgetown Institute for Politics and Public Service and um, a former communications director for the DNC, if I have that right, and a fellow Fox News contributor. Uh, Mo, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks for having me back. I always enjoy our conversations. Um, so, uh, as do I, which is why I wanted you back. And, you know, and I'm trying to, um, in the spirit of unity and comedy that our new president has professed in his inaugural, I am reaching out across the partisan divide to have a civil conversation <laughs> with somebody I disagree with. See, he's changing things already. It's, so, it's, it's um, remarkable. Uh, I guess good place to start is uh, what do you think of the inauguration? Uh, what do you think of all the executive orders? How do you th- how do you think it's going in day the first full day of the Biden presidency? He's crushing it. He's changing uh, everything uh, for the better. Look, I I have a couple of thoughts uh, from uh, Inauguration Day. First, uh, not an original thought, but one that has been top of mind for me. Watching the inauguration itself uh, at the Capitol and reflecting on the fact that it was two weeks to the day before that, um, that those shots of the Capitol look very different. Yeah. Um, the fact that 14 days after an insurrection and an attack on the Capitol building, we were able to have a beautiful um, ceremony that, uh, with a very strong theme of unity, um, just kind of underscores how fragile democracy is. But that the bones are still strong, mm-hmm. that um, uh, that our institutions still held despite one of the, the biggest stress tests they've faced in, in quite some time. And that um, 
that thought stayed with me throughout the day. For the ceremony itself and the speech, I mean, the unity theme was strong. Um, I loved, you know, the the president's inaugural address, followed by Garth Brooks asking me to join him in singing Amazing Grace, uh, followed by um, that incredible poem that um, uh, really kind of talked about the resilience of the American people and democracy. I, it, it just, it projected unity, not just in his words, but just in the whole pageantry of it. Um, and I think it was a, uh, it, it was needed medicine for a lot of us uh, who've been struggling with the past few years. Okay, so um, I, I it, it, for the purposes of just intellectual consistency and honestly, honesty, I'm going to push back a little bit. Um, you usually I will do. Say, I know, but I'll, I'll, let me just say up front, I thought it was a great inaugural. Um, as, 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 as a political speech, which we can, I think in our cynical moments, we can all agree inaugurals have to be in part just political speeches because they're political speeches, right? And as a political speech for the moment, I think it was about as good as it could be. I think the tone and tenor of it matched the persona that is why that that fits Biden at this stage of his life. Mm-hmm. You know, my argument I wrote in my newsletter was that he um, he needs to emulate Eisenhower and sort of be America's grandpa. You know, slow to anger, quicker to express disappointment at bad actors rather than condemnation, that kind of thing, while still having a clear line about right and wrong. And I think that was the tone. I thought it was very good on that respect. I'm not sure. You know, Chris Wallace said it was the best inaugural he ever heard. Maybe it was. I'm just never a huge fan of inaugurals, although I did think the angels in the whirlwind thing was 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 good from from Bush. But um, I guess that wasn't his inaugural. Anyway, um, so as a political matter, I thought it was very good. As it sort of bombs the wounds that we have, I thought it was very good. Um, I do think that the calls for unity, I think there was an internal contradiction within the speech, because on one hand, he was saying it's okay to disagree with each other. On the other hand, we need absolute unity. And he even hinted that some of the policy things that we need unity on are things that we're not going to get unity on, like climate change. Um, um, I think my own philosophical point of view is that presidents tend to emphasize unity way, way too much, because democracy is about disagreement, not about agreement. And it's about, you know, different interests expressing their differences civilly and, and, and forcefully, <clears throat> hopefully in Congress, which doesn't happen much. But what I, what I worry about is that, I mean, you already hear it on from some of our colleagues at places like Fox, where they're like outraged at the hypocrisy of Joe Biden calling for unity, which I think is nonsense. But um, I do think that the desire to have sort of a contrived or manufactured sense of unity is one of the reasons why people are so angry. When we tell people, oh, we all have to rally around my my, my team's ideas rather than yeah. letting a thousand flowers bloom, I think that's part of the underlying problem in America. So this is not so much a criticism it, it, of Biden, but a criticism of this obsession with unity that we have. Well, here's all push back on you a little bit. I, but I don't think unity, and I don't think the way the president talked about unity uh, necessarily means uh, lockstep agreement. Right. I mean, you're right. Democracy is where it is how we settle our differences. And it, it is about differences. And that has been true since the birth of the republic. 
Um, and, and the president even said that in his inaugural address, right? Hear me out, listen to me. And if you still disagree with me, so be it. So I don't think he's, yeah, it, I don't think there's an expectation of uniformity of, of idea and uniformity of agenda. We're going to, we're going to duke that out. He'll duke that out in, in, in the halls of Congress and, 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 you know, we'll see how they plan out. But I think what he's talking about and the way I think about unity is um, we're coming off of, a, off of a period, or maybe we're not off of it. We're in the midst of a period where we hate each other. Mm-hmm. And that's what's different. You and I have both been through many a political battle where we, where people disagree. And for, I mean, hell, Jonah, before the Trump era, you and I disagreed on just about everything, right? I mean, uh, but we didn't hate each other Mm -hmm. the way. It's not the first time in our history we have, you know, certainly the Civil War, certainly the tumultuous 60s, right? There was a lot of, of that. But we're angry at one another. We are, if you disagree with me, you're un-American. And that's where I think he is trying uh, to heal some wounds, that we can disagree with each other without. And, you know, and this is very consistent for Joe Biden. I'm, I still I was reflecting yesterday a little bit on the eulogy he gave at Senator McCain's funeral, mm-hmm. where he talked about we can dis, you know, disagreeing with one another, uh, disagreeing with each other's ideas, questioning each other's ideas, but not questioning each other's motives. We question each other's motives right now. If you are not on my team, then you are clearly trying to destroy the foundations of America. Right. And, and that's what I think he's talking about. And I felt like yesterday or the entire inauguration really um, uh, strove to, to tackle that head on and, and focus, even the entertainment, even the nighttime special wasn't about politics. It was about you know, our nurses and our teachers, the, the, what we're doing for one another that's what I think we need more of and is a stark departure from the immediate past president who, who fed oh, yeah. into that, I, right? I think there's, I mean, we might emphasize different things that infuriate us about the previous president, but I don't think there's a lot of daylight between us about that. I mean, it was a remarkable yeah. thing that 400,000 Americans died and it took a new president to come in to actually offer a prayer of remembrance for 400,000, you know, as many, basically as many Americans who died in World War II and Trump never wanted to do any of that. And to me, sort of just almost as a cinematic thing, as you sort of brought up, the fact that this inaugural was taking place literally where Donald Trump called for this American carnage to end. Mm -hmm. And then the last public act of his presidency was to inspire carnage on that very spot. That same stuff, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, like, if you put it in a script, it'd be like, ah, that's kind of on the nose, don't you think? Um, but yeah. I mean, look, the part, of the, inaugur- the part of the inaugural address that, that concerned me the most, you know, as part of his call for unity, you know, one of the things he he pushed was that for us to, to, to be unified, we've got to work for, off of the same set of facts. Right. I mean, pushing mm-hmm. back on this, we've got to stop lying to each other. We've got to st- we, we have to become a fact based society again. And that concerns me because I don't know how we put that genie back in the bottle right now. I mean, I agree with him 100 yeah. percent. But when you look at, you know, what led to that insurrection, the, the number of people in this country who are still convinced 
that um, that the election was stolen because of widespread fraud. Uh, nothing's going to change their minds. And, and the fact that you still have elected leaders in Washington perpetuating that and, and people in, in sort of the right wing media ecosystem who are still perpetuating that. I, I, because there's incentive for them to do so, political or ratings incentive for them to do that. You know, I, I, that's the part I'm concerned about. How do we get back to the point where we've always argued over facts, right? But we haven't had this level of of, of parallel universes mm-hmm. that we're that we're trying to operate in. Um, and 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 I don't know how we get back. I don't, I don't know how we tackle. No, I, I worry about this a great deal. I think it's a huge problem. Um, I think it's a terrible, as we were sort of just talking about a bit before we started recording, it is a terrible sign to me that so many of the people who were apologists for literally everything that Trump did, or, you know, with maybe that's a slight exaggeration for 95% of what Trump did. And not only 95% of what Trump did, but 100% of how he did it, the tone, the approach, the rhetoric, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and most of whom actually fully or mostly endorsed the election was stolen narrative, which was a lie. Um, you would think that they would have a little introspection, you know, mm-hmm. after all of this. Trump is the first president to lose the House, the Senate, um, and the presidency in one, you know, in one term. Um, never got the popular vote. I mean, when Mitt Romney lost in 2012, Sean Hannity had this big, we have to rethink our position on immigration introspection moment. No introspection for this absolute disastrous, you know, violence that they've done to the Republican Party and to conservatism. We're now basically, there are two parties. There's one, there's one party that is the sort of QAnon party mm-hmm. writ large, and there's one party that's not. And right now, I don't have any confidence that the Liz Cheney's Ben Sasses and Mitt Romney's are on the winning side of that divide. And Jonah, do you think that there's room for for an actual split? Do you think it, it we get to that point, or we're marching towards that point where there we could actually have three parties? So I don't, I don't. You know, I've always been very skeptical about third party stuff. You know, the mm-hmm. famous line from Richard Hofstadter was, "Third parties are like bees; they have their effect by stinging, and then they die." Right. Um, and so I think the the way the duopoly system is set up in the states with all of the various election laws, which you know about far better than I do, it's very difficult to see sustaining three parties for very long, but you can have this transition period. I personally, I'm not much of a praying man, but I really, really want Trump to start this Patriot Party thing. Mm-hmm. I want everybody to be forced to be put on the line to say, do you agree with this BS or do you not? Um, you know, and nothing focuses the mind and rouses the courage of a, of a Republican than a primary challenge from a third party, you know, mm-hmm. or, or a challenge from a third party candidate. And because I think one of the reasons why we're in the hot mess that we're in is that the GOP has not that one of the advantages, one of the things that kept conservative movement alive was its willingness to argue amongst ourselves and and have serious debates about all sorts of dogmatic trade-offs and whatnot. And that was all swept away under Trump because his personality became the only issue. And so we've gone, so much of the right has just gone flabby because you don't have to do a lot of critical thinking when you are part of a personality cult. And, um, And so I want 
those divides. I want everyone to be forced to actually own what their positions are. And I think it's possible. I mean, I do think it's possible. Um, I think that the biggest handicap for it would be the same one that was the handicap of Trump's presidency is he's lazy and doesn't know how to do strategic planning. So actually putting together a party takes a lot of work, as I'm sure you know better than I do. Yeah, Um, but it's interesting to me, right? Because what you're talking about, I kind of felt like that's what the Tea Party was, right? mm -hmm. Um, And they began to challenge in these primaries. And, And for a long, you know, for several years and a couple of cycles, it seemed like the Republican Party was just trying to figure out how to manage that. Right. Trump stepped up and just said, you know what, I'm just going to own it. You know, there's yeah. there's a lane here that I can that I can take over. And so I almost feel like there was that, you know, a third party sort of, and they won. That side won uh, in the battle between the two because there aren't, I mean, it's where a majority of Republican primary voters are. It's where a majority of Republicans in the House are. Um. And so, you know, the question is, do you continue to have that intra-party fight where, you know, maybe there's a pendulum that swings, maybe it swings slowly, or do the Ben Sasses and Liz Cheney's say, you know what, enough, we're going to, you know, if this is what the Republican Party has become, we're going to take our our, our business elsewhere and and create something separately. I almost wonder if it's more likely that they bolt you know, than it yeah. is for Trump to do something different. I mean, it's, it's possible. I mean, again, and I think the thing that a lot of people don't appreciate is that if Trump had simply halfway graciously accepted the results of the election, he'd be a shoe in for the 2024 <laughs> nomination. But the last two months, um, I don't know, in he would be the front runner to be sure. And, but the t- last two months have really hurt his brand among a lot of Republicans. And it's going to be more difficult for him to claw back you know, particularly after losing Twitter and all that kind of thing. But I agree. Look, this is a point my colleague Sarah Esger makes all the time is, is that it is very difficult to see how a party that has a wing that is sympathetic to the idea that pedophile vampires are running the deep state um, and that the election was stolen and that Trump was going to declare martial law and all of these things and that is sympathetic to the mobbing of the Capitol. It's difficult to see how that wing can exist in the same party of people who say none of those things are true, you know, because those are, those are kind of existential, intellectually speaking, no. existential differences. A hundred percent. I mean, for a long time, the biggest rift in the Republican party was, you know, it, it was where evangelicals and like wall street Republicans coexisted. Right. right. But this is, this is much, much, different and a much bigger rift. And I don't see how they come together. Rather than trying to figure out how to push out those forces of Trumpism, it seems to me that there's a growing movement instead to embrace those forces, but figure out how to do it better than he did. Now, some of some of that they're not going to be able to do because so much of it was personality driven, right? But there are a few voices out there that are trying to be the smarter version uh, of Donald Trump, the harder working version of Donald Trump, but still, you know, that, that same core message and, 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 and mobilization of those, of those vampire-believing, uh, vampire-pedophile-believing uh, voters. And, and you know, I, I, just, I, I just I wonder what happens to that whole movement. Moving yeah, was, I, I, my view is, because, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a broken record on 
this about the importance of arguments, particularly in a democracy, which is my sort of my point about the unity thing, is that we shouldn't be afraid of having arguments. And, you know, William F. Buckley said, you know, he was very tough on liberals and progressives and, and even on Eisenhower and all of these kinds of things, but he wasn't a bircher. And he drew a line. Right. And the QAnon crowd are the modern equivalent of birchers to me. And, the you know, and I hate popular front politics as, in a, as a generality. Um, and I cannot, and again, I am, I am not in a party guy anyway, but I can't be part of any movement that says, well, the alt-right or QAnon or the Proud Boys, they're just part of our coalition. That's, that's, that's yeah. just poisonous to me. And you should draw lines instead. All right, but rather than talk about right. the depressing yeah. death of the Republican Party. I'm a Democrat. Um, I can talk about this all day. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I feel like in my world, it's all I talk about, right? right. This, this, this stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I have, I have an actual, and it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just a straight up question. I have a bunch of friends whose political judgment I generally respect um, who think that the way they wrote the article of impeachment for Trump was designed to give Republicans an excuse, to give impeachment sympathetic Republicans in the House an excuse not to vote for it. And that the strategy that Pelosi used of, you know, if, if, they were, if, the, if the true goal, talk about unity, was to unify the country in condemning what Donald Trump did, which I'm all in favor of doing, you would have invited some Republicans in to help consult on how to draft the article of impeachment. You might even have given, you know, that you'd be talking about having Republican floor managers um, for the impeachment trial. Uh, I can't remember the congresswoman's name, but there was a Republican congresswoman who was in favor of impeachment, couldn't get floor time from the Republicans, asked the Democrats, and they wouldn't give it to her. And the, I mean, uh, the phrasing of the, the article of impeachment, according to this theory, is such that it gives an out because it's 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 so focused on inciting violence and on a definition of insurrection that is kind of poisonous to your to the Republicans' own base. And if you you know, my understanding from talking to some congressmen and talking to a lot of people who talk to some congressmen is that if you did a secret ballot on impeachment, you would have gotten sixty or seventy or eighty Republicans voting for it. And some of them, like Chip Roy and Mike Gallagher. They just thought the, the actual article was fatally flawed. Some of it may just be an excuse, but I think some of for some people that was an honest thing. Do you think that this there's any merit to the idea that part of what Pelosi was trying to do was just make House Republicans look bad by not voting for this thing rather than actually trying to figure out the best way to get the most Republicans on board to vote for it? No, I, I, I don't. Um, look, I think... <laughs> Maybe maybe after all this time in this business, I still maintain a little bit of uh, some a few, some Pollyannish qualities. I actually believe that this is one where the, the there's no faux outrage here, right? Oh, that, I'm not saying there's faux outrage. No, I mean, no, no, I know, I and I don't think it was driven by purely cynical political motive. Maybe there was some, but I, I believe that this is um, uh, motivated by a very real outrage at the president's incitement of insurrection, his dereliction in dealing with it after the fact, and a true belief that were we to just look the other way, 
even if it was just in the final days of his presidency, were we to just look the other way, it is a, a, it sends the wrong signal to future generations. I, I, I honestly believe that's the motivation. I think the most political motivation is let's try to get as close to preventing this guy from running again as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why they're still continuing to pursue it, even after he leaves office, in the hopes that should they should the Senate convict, they could then pass uh, by simple majority a, a, a prohibition on him running again. Um, now, does um, and, and I'm not an expert on the wording of articles of, of impeachment. Mm-hmm. Could they have written it differently? I'm sure they could have. Could. Could they and should they have done more to bring some Republicans into the fold uh, in a public-facing way? Probably. Even if that motivation you're talking about was was truly there, right, to try to make as many Republicans look bad as possible, giving a couple of them floor time probably wouldn't have prevented them from being able to do that, right? Right. Um, But I don't think that's what this was about. I don't think this was Pelosi saying, let's set this up. to, to embarrass the Republican Party. She doesn't need their help right now, you know, per our previous conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know what's going to happen in the Senate. I think the longer this they wait to get started, the less likely it is that he gets convicted. But, um, uh, but I think it was driven by genuine uh, motivations. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm totally with the idea that it was, the preponderance of motivations was genuine, <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm not ruling out cynicism as being a a shaping factor here as well. And yeah. and even even if you don't buy fully, which I, again I'm not. That's why I asked you about it because I'm not entirely persuaded myself. But even if you don't buy that fully, I think it is getting back to this thing about unity, a sign of how in the bunker both parties are. That as a just a pure tactical thing of how best to, if you actually want to succeed and impeach and remove the president, not just sort of consulting with some sympathetic, you know, Kitzinger or, or, you know, the, the 10 or Laura Liz Cheney and just saying, you know, how would you, you know, phrase this? It doesn't have to be public facing and how you, how you, you did that. But if you want to send a bipartisan message that this is unacceptable behavior, um, which I think is really important. Having it as be unpartisan as possible is a smart thing to do, and it but, but, seems not to have occurred to them. But even but let's I mean even were that they to bring on a Republican floor manager, even if they were to to have a Republican speak uh, during the Democrats' time, I, I don't know that that would have changed anything, right? I mean, you still have the number three Republican in the House speaking out against it on her own accords. Or speaking out in favor of impeachment on her own accords, and look what's happening to her. Right? She's no, she's agree, at risk of being excommunicated. We are, the the greater outrage to me, you know, Nancy Pelosi wouldn't have to to make this play in order to embarrass Republicans because they did it on their own. The Republicans who stood up in the midst of insurrection and still continue to go through with their objections. The Republicans who are now threatening to excommunicate Liz Cheney from House Republican leadership, even after insurrection, because she took this vote, right? I don't know that it would have mattered what, uh, what, however they did it. They could, put, they could have had an equal number of Republican uh, 
House managers as, as Democrats. And you, that wouldn't have changed that dynamic, right? I don't think any of that House Republican caucus that is now threatening Liz Cheney, I, I'm not sure that number would have changed. No, but I do. I, look, I mean, I, I just from talking to a lot of Republicans, um, I can just tell you that. And, and again, some of it is self-serving, right? Sometimes we latch on to the excuse for not doing what we think is the right thing. And even if that excuse, even, even if they had done it differently, they would have found a different excuse. And this is sort of retroactive yeah. rationalization. So there's some of that going on. But there are enough of them that I think, like, I think sincerely, Chip Roy, if you, re, if you listen to his statement on the floor, he called Trump's conduct impeachable. He called what he did outrageous. But he thought that the way the article was written, that it was, it was fatally flawed. I'm not sure that it is. Um, but so I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely in agreement with his reasoning. But there, are, there is a non-zero number of Republicans who I think you could have gotten the number of Republicans voting for impeachment considerably higher than 10, which would be good for the country. Um, it would have a better impact on, uh, it would increase the likelihood that you could actually get to conviction. Um, and it would make the Democrats look more magnanimous and bipartisan oriented than they were. But it's, I mean, it's all in hindsight. Oh, yeah. Of all those arguments, the only one I made now this is the cynic in me coming out. The only one that I truly buy was uh, you, you would have had more if it was a secret ballot. Right. And this is the problem. This is the challenge that where the Republican primary electorate is today, not not overall Republican electorate, but the Republican primary electorate is today. You, a lot of these folks didn't feel like they could publicly. You know, they may have privately. Sure. Right. And if it was a secret ballot, that number probably would have been higher. And then they probably would have gone home and said they voted the other way, yeah. you know, publicly. And that would have, that would arouse a really great conspiracy theory where there weren't enough Republicans admitting that they voted to impeach him to actually match the numbers who voted to impeach him. And then they'd say, oh, the election was faked. Ele- you know, election you know. fraud. Yeah. Dominion yeah. ran the, the ballot in the House. Um, look, I mean, you're not going to get around me on, I mean, like, I, I personally want to get rid of primaries altogether. <laughs> you know, so like I think I think that there was a huge mistake uh in the 72 reforms, you know, and all the McGovern stuff. Um I talk about this, that on this podcast all the time. I I would rather go back to either nominating conventions or smoke-filled rooms. Um I think that way you actually have political institutions that care more about their long-term interests than caving to basically the Fox audience and the primary voters. Um there's too much populism and, and in some ways too much democracy in our democracy for me, but I'm a curmudgeonly right winger. So there's that. Um, it's true. I mean, the TV networks have become the new parties, right? right? I mean, they are doing more to, to influence the, the, how, uh, pri- how parties nominate their candidates than the actual parties yeah. have the ability to do, right? Yeah. It's not that they're doing it better than the parties, They've got more power than the parties do in selecting the candidates that carry those banners, and and that's yeah. scary. No, that's how Ron DeSantis became governor of Florida. He ran the he he realized it was a Fox News primary, primarily you know to get Donald Trump's attention, but also to get Trump viewers' attention, and it worked for him. Yeah. Um. So, walk me through how you see it, because I, 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 as I think is clear, I think Trump should be impeached. Um, I think what he did was impeachable. I think there are an enormous number of things that Trump did that are impeachable. I don't think it's a close call. 
Um, I think getting hung up on the, 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 the terminology of the articles of impeachment is a cop out, as I was trying to suggest before. But, um, but as a prudential matter, do you think the country's better off if they have the trial and then he is not convicted and then can claim vindication? Do you think it would be in Biden's interest to pardon him? You know, possibly in exchange for some promise not to run again, which I think you can do. Um, you know, what what is the ideal scenario um, that you think is in the realm of the plausible for how this actually works out? You know, I'm torn on this. And so I... I, I you're making me talk about something I don't normally like to talk about publicly because I'm kind of torn. I, I, I see so many different scenarios here. Um, I think um, I think now that there's he's been impeached, it should go to trial. And if it goes to trial, I hope he's convicted and I hope they, they ban him uh, from running again. That doesn't mean he goes away, though. Um, and part of me is a little concerned, right? Donald Trump, despite all of his bluster, has um, perfected the politics of victimization. And I can see him using it as another um, arrow in that, in that political quiver. Um, how he articulates that is, um, uh, is a big question now that you know, he's lost his ability to, to rage tweet. Um, and I don't see him starting uh, his own news network, but his voice will still get out and and will mobilize a lot of those Republican primary voters. Um, and so how the rest of the, the Republican Party, I mean, look, there, a lot of this is going to be on the Republican Party, right? A lot of this is going to be on the next, uh, the emerging leaders and those who would like to to succeed him as the standard bearer of the party and how they handle that. I don't know. What does Nikki Haley do? What does Nikki Haley say? Right. What does Mike Pence do and say? Um, he's going to complicate this and, and maybe it does get a little bit more complicated um, if he's convicted. Then again, maybe it, maybe it gets simplified, right? Maybe there are more people now willing to say, you know what, Mr. President, we stood by you to the bitter end, but, we need to go, we let someone else with that, with less baggage carry the torch and come, you know, endorse us, support us, but we can move the ball forward and maybe they can make that case effectively to, to a lot of his voters. Um, uh, I don't think Joe Biden should pardon him. Mm -hmm. I don't, I think that, uh, I think a lot of people would see that as um, uh, a betrayal if, if you were to do that. Yeah, so how does the Democratic base respond to something like that? Uh, I think they would have a very hard time with that. Now, I think what Joe Biden has done, uh, look, the, the Democratic base has total bloodlust, right? I mean, they want mm -hmm. to see him gone completely, totally, forever, um, nowhere near uh, a microphone, a keyboard, or a ballot box ever again. Right. I think Joe Biden has managed to walk that line very well um, uh, as a vessel for their, for, for their anger without alienating uh, every single Trump voter um, in the way that a lot, of, a lot of other Democrats are alienating a lot of those Trump voters. Um, you know, 76 million voted for him. Not all of them like him. Mm -hmm. 
um, a lot of the seven, a lot of those Trump voters, and we saw that in the Georgia Senate race, right? right. The number of Trump voters found that were just like enough, like just enough. Let's give us someone new that's not going to bring all the crap that you bring. Joe Biden hasn't alienated those people. So I think, you know, uh, I think the Biden White House would just as soon get past this period, right? They, they didn't mention President Trump at all yesterday. And I think that was the right move. He will likely take a public uh, position of letting whatever happens in the Senate happen, uh, letting whatever happens in the courts happen without any White House uh, involvement. And I think that's probably the right thing. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, just on the merits, forget the politics. It just, yeah. It, but I mean, I, I, both from merits and politics, I think yeah. that's the right thing for him to no, do. I, I think let, let, let everyone else litigate the past. Joe Biden needs to be the guy that's focused on what's next. And as long as he can do that, I think he can walk that line well. So, I mean, let's do crass punditry for a second. Um, the, you know, the a big chunk, I mean, as you sort of suggested, um, I mean, let me, let me back up. One of the talking points from a lot of people on the right that just drives me insane is uh, 75 million voters feel betrayed. 75 million voters love Donald Trump. 75 million voters, you know, like someone on actually Twitter when I said I wanted them, I wanted Trump to start the Patriot Party, like as we were talking about before, said, um, you really want Donald Trump to take 74 million voters away from the Republican Party? And I was like, that you think that that's a possibility is insane. There are large numbers of Trump voters. Most of the Trump voters I know, and I know a lot, can't stand his personality, couldn't stand, you know, how he was his own worst enemy, hated the tweeting, but they liked the policies or they disliked Democrats more and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot more ambivalence towards Trump among those 74 million, 75 million voters than, than the, you know, the, 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 the spokesman of Trump's, Trumpism want to claim. But so the question I have is, um, of those voters who didn't vote for Trump, were the mostly suburban women, white women, right? I mean, there was it was interesting how much they were the decisive people, and it really comes out in Georgia to a certain extent. But those sort of suburban voters who were once sort of nominally the base of the Republican Party, they haven't all become sort of serious progressive liberals, right? I think you're right that Biden has figured out how to not alienate those people and, and, and not antagonize them. Do you think the rest of the democratic party has as well? I mean, and no. do, do you think the democratic party will take Biden's lead on this stuff? I think Biden reflects a majority of the democratic party. You know, you wouldn't do that, but you, you wouldn't know that uh, if you just lived in the cable news ecosystem. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think a majority of the democratic Party is on the far left. I think a majority of the Democratic Party is center left. And, and it's not new, right? It's fair, been fairly consistent for at least the past 15, 20 years. You know, I worked on Tim Kaine's campaign for governor of Virginia back in 2005. And he won in the suburbs. He actually kind of wrote the playbook, um, not just in Virginia, but in a number of states that Barack Obama adopted in 2008 as to how to run and win and, you know, by talking to suburban voters. Um, the districts that gave the Democrats the majority in 2018 
were not, you know, that they weren't the districts represented by the squad. Um, the squad, members of the squad very well represent their districts, blue districts that were, are becoming bluer. Mm-hmm. But the districts that flipped the majority were those suburban districts where you had Democrats who know how to talk to those voters. They can still, you know, push progressive values, but those districts are much more, you know, they are a bluish shade of purple. I do believe the suburbs are trending blue, and that's, a, I think, going to be a fairly permanent realignment. They're just not going to be bright blue, right? They're going to mm-hmm. be a bluish shade of purple for quite some time. Um, and so I think Joe Biden's figured that out. I think most of the party has figured that out. Um, despite Republicans' best uh, efforts to paint Raphael Warnock as some crazy radical, you know, communist, um, he did well in mm-hmm. suburban communities. So now I don't think most of the party is alienating them as long as the party keep, but it's going to take work, right? They can't take the suburbs for granted. It's going to take work and they're going to need to make sure that the core democratic message um, of 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 opportunity and uh, and justice is what penetrates because I think that that will continue to resonate. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, but we were talking before about the distorting effects of the sort of how the cable news networks are basically becoming the parties. Um, on the on the on the Fox side, you would be forgiven for thinking that the entire Democratic Party, at least at a certain point in the campaign, that the entire Democratic Party was for defunding the police and socialism. Yes. Right. And we can condemn that distortion or that cherry picking or nut picking from Fox and from the right as much as you like. I'm willing to stipulate it. It doesn't change the fact that if you watched a lot of MSNBC, you could also reach that conclusion because MSNBC would put on a lot of people who were way to the left of the party, who would do, um, you know, sometimes thoughtful explanations about what they mean by defund the police. But if you were like a normal viewer watching this, I mean, I saw it many times. You'd be like, you know, like or like one of my favorite moments was when there was finally some legitimate pushback against defund the police, um, which I in no way think that normal Democrats want to do, right? And if you look at the public polling on this, there's no evidence for it. Most minority communities either want the same amount of policing or more policing, right? Doesn't mean they don't want better policing, but they don't want to get rid of the cops. But I love when there was finally like, it was dawning on a lot of progressives in the media that they were hurting Joe Biden and the Democrats by pushing this idea as if it was a mainstream idea. Then the New York Times goes and runs this banner headline on the op-ed page saying, yes, we mean abolish the police. Um, do you have a similar problem, not symmetrical, but do you have a similar problem with with left-wing media that people like me are enduring with right-wing media? Um, uh, maybe. What I'll be curious to see is what happens to the media ecosystem post-Trump, right? Because, I mean, he was the defining figure. And so both sides would kind of amplify the loudest voices because, Politics during the Trump area was just loud. Mm-hmm. Um, now that we're going to have more, hopefully, of a calming effect on our national political dialogue, um, I, I, you know, we've seen the ratings incentives for the for for the last approach. What, so I'm curious to see what they do moving forward. I don't mean to dismiss the challenge the Democratic Party has with that perception. 
you know, we did lose seats in the House. We didn't lose control of the House, but we did lose seats in the House. A number of those, for example, were in South Florida, mm-hmm. where um, uh, they lost a couple of uh, of seats that they shouldn't have lost in large part because of the socialist narrative, right? Maybe right. not the defund police, but the socialist narrative, which had a very resonant impact on um, uh, on the South Florida Cuban community or Latino community. Um, and Democrats didn't do enough to counter that. Um, now, most, a lot of that was because of very effective campaigns being run by Trump and his allies in those districts. Um, so Democrats have to do some, some both strategic and tactical soul searching. Um, but again, I, I point to Georgia where it didn't resonate, mm-hmm. right? Where they won two Senate seats, it, you know, a special election, I don't care whether or not Donald Trump is making a special, I mean, a special election is tough for Democrats in a state like Georgia, or not a special, a, a runoff election. Yeah. Uh, historically, it's tough for us, but they were able to uh, exceed their performance in the general election during the special, um, despite an incredibly concerted attack um, by Republicans across the spectrum. They were able to withstand that. They wouldn't have done that if um, they wouldn't have been able to do that if that narrative had taken full hold. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I'll push back on that about is is that first of all, the Republican candidates, particularly Loeffler, were not good. And (laughs) second, uh, as I keep emphasizing on this podcast, you know, in politics one tried and true strategy for winning elections is to create wedge issues that divide your opponent's coalition while bringing voters over to your coalition. Trump did the opposite. He created, he made himself and the stolen election narrative stuff, a wedge issue for Republicans. And, um, I think if, you know, the smart sort of data geeks who've looked really at the granular level of the Georgia and, and I would argue Arizona. I mean, like I, so I was talking to a, very influential person in Arizona recently. And, and he said, you know, look, do I think that, um, that the, the whole, the entire Republican party of Arizona is passionately, uh, pro John McCain's memory and loves John McCain and would do anything to defend John McCain. No. Do I think that there are 11,000 Republicans in the state of Arizona who really could not countenance attacking a dead war hero? Yes. And um, Trump, and that's, that, that's the problem, is you have these, these two coalitions that we were talking about. Neither can win elections without the other. But um, Trump asked a big bunch of his people, in effect, to stay home in, in Georgia. And I'm not saying that, you're wrong about, I mean, the suburb, nature of suburban voters is definitely changing and all of that. But, uh, you know, one of probably in the low 200s on the list of reasons why the attack on the Capitol was bad. But one of the reasons why the attack on the Capitol was bad is it completely eclipsed the blame that Trump would get for the turnout in Georgia for the election in Georgia and, and, and in Arizona and some of these other things. It, it fueled 
allowed a lot of people to skip the 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 coming to grips with the damage he's done to the party. So we've got the immediate test of this will be uh, the 2022 midterms. Yeah. Um, You know, normally you could look at a state like Virginia in 2021 where they're going to have a governor's race, but there is no Virginia Republican Party anymore. So so we're going to have to wait. We're going to have to wait till the midterms. Um, Look at the first 24 hours of the Biden presidency. COVID, COVID, COVID. Paris Accords, mm-hmm. right, and undoing some of the more incend- other incendiary um, Trump actions. If Democrats for the next two years are saying we are focused on COVID from a public health perspective, we're focused on COVID from an economic uh, uh, recovery perspective, we're focused on focused on COVID in terms of reopening our schools, um, and we're going to focus on other key priorities like the Paris Accords and tackling climate change, for example. That's what suburban voters want to talk about. That's what they want to hear. What is the Republican parallel to that, right? And that's why I'm not so concerned. If this is what Democrats are focused on for the next two years, and Republicans are still struggling with, do we or or don't we continue to give Donald Trump a big sloppy wet kiss, the challenge for Republicans in the suburbs are going to continue to grow. If this is what Democrats are focused on and the Republican counter argument continues to be you crazy socialist police defunders, that's not, it it, it didn't fly in most places in 2020 and it certainly won't fly in 2022. And that's why I think you got the new president and at least some signals from congressional Democrats that you know we are going to not be singularly focused, but we are going to be primarily focused on this. We'll do some other things that will maybe keep the base happy, but we're going to really be focused on this. Uh, that's comfortable space to be in the suburbs. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little more. Uh, I, I'm not as dismissive that the you know getting rid of the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, trying to go for some of the immigration stuff. I think the $15 minimum wage is a kind of a poison pill in that relief package. I, I, I think it's, you know, was it $15 an hour is the median wage in Alabama. A lot of these restaurants and small businesses, the last thing they need right now is to hike, have, hike, have the, you know, their payrolls, you know, go through the roof when they're trying to just stay afloat. But, um, but, but that's all, that's all the fun sort of policy arguments from the the before time. I was just going to say it's so refreshing that this is where our conversations <laughs> no, can go back to, right? No, I know, I know. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, I'm saying these things, and but <laughs> the I do worry. I mean, worry is the wrong word. I don't dismiss the possibility that the natural tendencies of the Democrats, particularly the House Democrats, to do things like try to bail out teachers unions and all of these kinds of things uh, that could give the excuse for these two coalitions on the right to put their differences behind them um, in terms of because negative polarization is still what drives so much of our politics. And um, and sort of like getting back to the impeachment thing, I just think there's a lot of groupthink out there and people don't even think necessarily about how, what seems like absolute common sense to them, how it will be perceived 
by the other side. Yeah. And um, so, <laughs> well, I don't know. We, we, we do polling uh, at our institute uh, that we've been tracking for about two years now on voters' attitudes towards civility and politics. Um, civility kind of broadly defined. And we've been testing sort of like, how bad do people think it is? Who do they blame? And how much do they really want it? And it's that last mm -hmm. part that always really intrigues me. And while we're not necessarily talking about civility per se, there's there's two questions in there that, that I find very relevant to the conversation we're having. Uh, and it pertains to that last part, right? How much do they really want it? We ask them, agree or disagree? Do you want more civility in politics? Like 90 plus percent say yes. Sure. Agree or disagree with the following statement. Compromising common ground are noble goals we want our leaders to strive for. 88% say they agree with that. The very next question, agree or disagree? I am tired of leaders who compromise on my values. I want them to stand up and fight the other side. 87% say they agree with that, um, right? It's as if people are saying, you know, no, I 100% want common ground. Just come over to where I'm standing and then we'll be on common ground, right? right? And so to the conversation we're having about like where do, you know, how much do the extremes or the, the, the you know, the, the far left or the far right of each party drive the train moving forward? Yeah, the, it's going to be interesting because voters are sending mixed messages. Voters are saying, I absolutely want you to compromise in order to find common ground. But I want absolutely want you to find common ground, but don't you dare compromise. Right. right. Um, and so the incentive structure is less than clear you know, for political yeah. leaders you yeah. know, who do take their marching orders from their voters. Um, I tend to think this president won on a message that he was, he very clearly articulated that he was a common ground kind of guy, that he was going to at least extend a hand and see how close we could meet before, you know, he took his final stand. Um, but there are others out there who don't think that's the right approach, who want him to just, you know, draw your line in the sand at the beginning and yeah, make them come to you. Uh, I think the president's going to be more of a, Let's find common ground. I think that's where most uh, independent voters are, where most suburban voters are. Um, and so hopefully, you know, the leadership uh, in the Congress will take their cues from that. And I hope that um, the Republicans see, because uh, I think there's political incentive for Republicans to do that. I think there's political incentive for both sides to do that. Um, the uh, The... One of the one of the things that I have, I've I'm constantly rediscovering reasons why I think Madison was brilliant, mm -hmm. um, and one of them is that you know the the whole checks and balances separation of powers thing was in some ways is originally intended to hold off despotism, right? You, you couldn't you just couldn't get a, enough power from all three branches of government to allow some sort of de, you know some sort of Caesar to take control. But it turns out that also when you have, because I think right now, you know, the sun and moon party thing, I think we have two moon parties. Neither one really has figured out. I think Democrats are better poised to be a majority party than Republicans are for all sorts of reasons that I'm sure you, most of which you probably agree with. Um, but, you know, what, two months ago on special report, totally 
Joe Manchin just volunteered that he wasn't going to vote to get rid of the legislative filibuster and that he wasn't going to vote for, you know, Medicare for all or whatever it was. And it turns out that when you have a evenly divide, you know, you may disagree about the extreme thing, but at least, you know, in the House, you have two parties that are extremely ideological and locked into their own points of view, um, sort of like two camel humps, right? And the center is almost empty. That situation actually makes the center much more powerful than it would be otherwise numerically, simply because that's the this, the tiebreaker is there. That's Joe Manchin. I and mean, Joe Manchin is, he's the crown regent of America for the next two years because nothing can happen without him. And that that's reassuring to me. But I, I, guess, I guess backing up, you know, Tim Alberta and I have been making this point for a while now that if you gave Joe Biden truth serum before the Georgia runoff and asked him, how upset would you be if the Republicans hold on to the Senate? Um, he would at least be much more ambivalent about it because if, if McConnell were running things in a very small minor, very small majority, he'd be able to say to his base, hey, look, we got to stay in the realm of the possible. I love all the stuff that you guys want. I can't deliver it without getting the votes in the Senate. So everything's going to have to be a negotiation. Um, do you think sort of both with the, the Madisonian mansion point, but also in general, that a tight Senate is actually good for him politically? Maybe not for all the things that you want to get past, but for this sense that he's a reasonable guy because he has to be negotiating with the other side? I think a closely divided Senate is good for anybody who believes uh, in trying to find any sort of common ground, um, which clearly is something that the that the president's articulated he wants to try to do. Because you're right. I mean, it's not just Mansion, right? It's it's sort of the the Mansion, Romney, Collins, uh, Murkowski, Murkowski. Um, you know, I, I suspect Hickenlooper and, and and Kelly will kind of be, you know, yeah. in and out of, of that, right? Like, those are going to be the power brokers in this in this next Senate. Um, they are the ones who, um, and I think they, they've already signaled, like, they're going to want to reach out and talk to each other. They're going to look for opportunities when they see a fight coming to try to get ahead of it with some sort of bipartisan approach. Um, and I think... Um, I would not be surprised if both McConnell and Schumer at times just kind of take a step back and let them do their thing first Yeah. Um, for the point you're making, right? Because right. while I think there is going to be, uh, you know, McConnell's going to be wanting to play on the in, in that space, so will Schumer, right? And be needing to say to folks, hey, look, we've got to live within the realm of the possible. Um, we don't have uh, a filibuster-proof uh, majority, and so we're going to have to, you know, this is the best deal we could get. To, to elevate the voices of that caucus a bit, I think um, uh, helps them make that case. Um, was there any other finding? You, know, you, you, just, you guys just did another big poll thing. Is there anything that- Yeah, no, it was interesting. To get to? It, it was interesting. We were in the field on, with the civility poll uh, the week of the insurrection. So we uh -huh. were in the field for a couple of nights before and we were in the field for a couple of nights after. And I'll be honest, I was completely shocked by the results. Um, people believe that um, the state of our political discourse is worse than it's ever been. Mm. You know, scale of zero to 100, zero being no political division and 100 being edge of civil war. 
the mean response right now is 76. Uh, but when you ask them where they think it will be one year from now, and this is the part that surprised me, drops down to 65. Hmm. Um, when you ask them, you know, we went into the field that week because we wanted to, we knew Biden's theme was going to be unity. We wanted to see sort of what his starting point was. We asked people what they thought, did they think he will be successful in unifying the country? Um, 56% of voters believed he would be at least somewhat Mm -hmm. uh, successful, um, which was much more optimistic than I expected. They, um, 90% said that they want the president and Congress to work together. And 60 plus percent believe that they will work together to get results. Far more optimistic than I expected. And so, you know, conducting a civility poll in the final weeks of the Trump presidency <laughs> with an insurrection happening in the middle of it um, was, you know, I was worried what we'd find. And we found that people were cautiously optimistic about the state of our discourse moving forward. And I don't think they're Pollyannish. I don't think they believe that we're going to agree on everything, you know, back, going back to the beginning of our conversation. But I do think they think it's about to get better. There's still some warning signs, yeah. still hyper-polarized. While 56% of the country believes that the president will be somewhat successful, um, very few Republicans believe that. Sure. Um, there is a growing concern over politically motivated violence. Um, and there was a spike the last two nights that we were in the field versus the first two nights, right? In the immediate yeah. aftermath of the insurrection. Um, a spike in politically in concern over politically motivated violence, primarily from white uh, nationalist groups. That's, you know, a, a, a big caution. Um, who they blame the most for the first time in our polling, Donald Trump was not at the top of that list. Mm. Um, social media was. The social media yeah. platforms, they blame the most. That's concerning because they've already proven they don't know what to, how, to, how to deal with that. Yeah. And we've proven as voters, we don't know yeah. how to use those in a way that doesn't further polarize us. But I walked away feeling a little bit more optimistic about how we view the future of our politics. Maybe it's just a hopeful optimism. Um, and it certainly is a cautious one, but it was there. And, and that was refreshing. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing how just the absence of Donald Trump's tweets just brought the whole volume of American discourse down. Right. Um, sort of dismayingly suddenly. It's like, holy, it's like, you know, uh, wrote the other day, it's like when you've been hearing a leaf blower or a jackhammer going for so long and then it suddenly stops, yeah. the silence is loud in a way and noticeable, you know? Um, and uh, and I, that part I, I, I welcome entirely. Um, but I agree, it's going to be, like the social media thing, uh, there's, it's very difficult to see how either party figures out how to cut the Gordian knot on that because I think both parties kind of have weird, intellectually incoherent or non-persuasive positions on what to do about social media. And and regardless if you agree with that or not, the two parties' positions on social media are, are just utterly unreconcilable um, and, and counterintuitive, if you ask me. I mean, like Democrats basically want more censorship 
more regulation. I guess I'm in some ways more sympathetic to the Democratic position on this. And the Republican position seems to be how much it hurts their feelings that racists and insurrectionists are being taken off of Twitter, um, among other things. But I don't, I, I don't see how that resolves itself anytime soon. And I don't trust the social media companies for any of their proposals either. Yeah, um, it, yeah I, I don't know what they do. I mean, it's like cable news in many ways, right? Like yeah. everyone sees the problem. Everyone knows that how toxic they are. But the economic models work and yeah. we're responsible for the economic models, right? I mean, they wouldn't be doing it if there wasn't a marketplace for it. And how, you know, whether we're talking social media or whether we're talking about cable news and how um, as long as the incentive structure is there for these you know, very successful private companies to keep doing what they're doing, why would they change it? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the reasons why Steve and I started the dispatch was because we feel like a lot of people don't feel well served by the existing media, you know, offerings and actually want calmer, more serious, um, you know, uh, more trustworthy stuff and less fan service. And, you know, you have your poll that makes you feel a little bit about America, better about America. I have our subscription numbers, which make me feel a little bit better. Oh, congratulations. Congra- by the way, I mean, to, to all of you, congratulations on the success. I mean, it is as a Democrat, um, it's sometimes hard for me to stomach conservative media, um, but I actually enjoy reading you guys. It, it makes me think about how to articulate a democratic argument better. Um, you know, and that's kind of what this whole thing is supposed to be, right? Like a healthy competition of ideas should require us all to bring our A games. And um, uh, I, I feel like the dispatch is sort of restoring a little bit of that. So congratulations. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, my, my, my friend and colleague uh, at AEI and formerly at National Review, um, Ramesh Panuru always used to say, look, I want to, I want to, I want to deal with liberalism's best arguments, not its worst arguments. Right. And I used to say, yeah, that's a good idea, but it's a lot more fun to deal with their worst <laughs> arguments. <laughs> and, and I've been moving more and more to the Panuvrian position on all of this for a while. So, um, cause I think it's just what it's a moral responsibility at this point. Um, Mo Lethe, thank you so much for coming on. You know, my, my only objection to your name, Mo, is that it doesn't lend itself to like, like if you name Joe, you could do Joe Mentum and that kind of thing. But Momentum is just the word momentum. And it it's just, just the word momentum, but, but I'll, I'll take it. I'm happy to own it. So. <laughs> um, anyway, thanks so much for being on. Hope to have you back. We'll get you that gold jacket one day. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. Okay, so uh, my friend Mo Lethe from the Georgetown Institute of politics and public service has left the building as it were and uh, i want to thank him for coming on and um, i'm sorry about the weird schedule this week where um you know we recorded this using zencaster to uh recorded a whole episode with my friend and colleague leon aaron brilliant russia scholar really interesting all about putin all about russia what's going on in russia deep dive counter programming no punditry kind of stuff I really like to do, had lots of questions and uh, everything looked like it was going fine. And then Zencaster lost the uh, audio, just, just lost it. Just, 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 just lost it. And uh, um, to say I'm cross about it is um, an understatement. So uh, anyway, that's why the schedule got all weird. And then there was the added issue that, the 300th episode of The Remnant, 
uh, is this week. And we wanted to have for a very selective audience who have been clamoring for this for a very long time, the return of Jack Butler to the podcast. And so that just made all the scheduling kind of weird. We recorded the Jack Butler episode. That will be coming in uh, shortly after the, the this one with Mo goes out. This, this one with Mo is two ninety nine. dollars um, I want to say in advance for listeners who joined the podcast after Jack came on board, you may miss some of the, because uh, Jack is kind of an acquired taste, you may miss some of the inside jokes and some of the charm of it. Others will be tickled. Um, but I wanted to do it. Miss Jack, glad he's thriving. And um, and a lot of people asked for it. But uh, if you don't want to listen to it, don't listen to it. If you do want to listen to it, it's exactly what you would expect from a Jack Butler Return to the Remnant episode. So there's that. And other than that, thanks again to Mo for doing this. And thanks again to all of you. If you can become a dispatch member, that would be wonderful. Um, you know, this is, these are uh, weird times. And um, we really think this is a special moment, uh, a real market opportunity for what the dispatch is trying to do because so many um, on the right seem not to have learned any lessons from the last four years and instead are doubling down on some of the behaviors that made the last four years such a mess. Um, and we think, you know, that there's definitely an even bigger market for what we're trying to do, which is come at you from the right, you know, from the center, right. Um, and, uh, be honest about that, be clear about that, but also be honest about what the actual facts are and not try to carry water for any politician or any party. Um, and, provide honest, straightforward reporting um, that doesn't just tell you what you want to hear, but tells you what we think you need to hear. And we want to do a lot more of that in 2021 and going forward. So if you can get on board, you know, we may not be on the ground floor anymore, but we're nowhere near at the top floor that we want to get to. And if you can become a member, well, you'll help us get there. So with that, uh, thanks again, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>